0: We got hit from four sides all at once, deafening.
1: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things
2: went south really bad.
1: You've got to have an element of crazy to be
0: good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter.
1: Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting There's to other moments tough. in his life during battles. No you might the
0: feel like
1: not your legs were gonna get blown off. You know, you know part, part of part The part story part. of transformation
0: is powerful.
1: Welcome to the second part of my conversation with former commando, Dean Parkinson. Volume 1 covered Dean's earlier years in and out of uniform, and finished with joining the 2nd Commando Regiment and deploying to Afghanistan in 2009. This episode picks up right after that combat deployment, with sights set for another tour in 2010. So Dean, tell me, as the tour progresses and eventually comes to a conclusion, are you feeling content and satisfied that you finally got to have these experiences? And then how do you find that mental transition coming from that kinetic, high-intensity deployment to home and back with the family?
0: I think had I just spent my whole trip in Mortal Platoon, I would have been really disappointed, I think. And that's not to reflect on the importance of Mortal Platoon and the guys that were in there because they'd already done that, right? So these are guys who are already kicking indoors and stuff and then they've gone to Mortal Platoon as a part of their progression in the battalion, I suppose, or the regiment. But, yeah, so once once I actually got that fight in the Green Belt, I went back and I remember talking to the guys that I used to be in the platoon with and I was saying lots of people go for years and years and years without getting that. You've got it on your first trip. I was really excited about that. And I know people might think that's weird, but I was so happy that that had happened. And my analogy with it is, it's like when you parachute, right? I know guys who have had 5,000 parachute jumps and they've never had a malfunction. So they still don't feel like they're a real skydiver or parachutist. They still don't feel like they've made sure that they can deal with any situation until they've had a malfunction. And I think it's the same thing with the gunfight thing, you know, like I think until you've actually had that and you've, prove to yourself more than anything that you can perform the job, then I think um, you always have that little thing in the back of your mind, you know, sort of hoping and wishing that it would happen. I was never afraid to die, mate. And I don't mean that in a gung-ho way. I certainly don't mean that in a real rough, tough way. And I don't want to sound like a wanker, but I was never, ever afraid to die. The first thing that I didn't want to be responsible for was the death of a friend of mine or a colleague. The second thing was I didn't want to be responsible for the wounding or of mate getting injured. The third thing was I didn't want to be responsible for killing or wounding a civilian. That didn't need to be. Then I went down to the fourth thing, which I didn't want to lose my appendage, I didn't want to lose my tackle or the, the wheels, so to speak. I could deal with, you know, losing an arm or a leg or something like that, but I certainly didn't want to lose that. There are more important things to lose, yeah. <laughs> the ability to go home and have fun even without a leg or an arm, I'm sure is so important, you know, and I say that with the utmost respect to friends of mine and that who have suffered that.
1: I'm sure that's all very important to Julie
0: as well. Yes, exactly. Anyway, and the last thing was sort of getting killed myself. And that's where it was. It was like fifth or sixth down the the run. I I never even thought about it. I can honestly say I never did a job and I thought about getting killed. Were we in situations where I thought I could get killed? Absolutely, heaps of them, right? But in the heat of the moment, all you're doing is you're doing your job. So you're, you're micromanaging, you're focusing on your job to start with, then you're focusing on the team and then you're focusing on mission success and focus outside of that. So it's almost like once again, with skydiving we have a thing called uh, sensory overload. You know, when you first start skydiving, you've got this small little five cent piece thing that you're concentrating on. That is jumping out and pulling a handle. And as you get thousands and thousands of jumps up more experience that expands to out here where you could be a tandem master with a camera on your wrist, jumping out of a plane with a person on the front of you, worried about where the sun is, where the light is, and worried, if, are they smiling on the front? How's their body position? Where you know all that sort of stuff. The same thing I think happens with the more and uh, the more time you spend in combat, that awareness level grows. When I finished that trip, I was really happy at the end of that trip, and I just wanted to come back again as soon as I could. I found it okay to go home because I, like, I really miss my family and that. But when you're over there, I mean, we Skyped and we talked and everything. But as soon as you went outside the war and you went on a job, then I didn't think about them at all. I have to say the one time I did on that trip, and that was when we were actually in a contact, a long-range contact at the time, and I got called over to the boss's car and my wife had a miscarriage while I was away. And she was fair way through the pregnancy. And they did offer to fly me home, which would have been a mission coming from where we were. Like it would have been helicopter to car, the helicopter to, to get me back to TK or whatever and then fly home. And look, I decided not to because my focus was on the team and the job. I reconciled that with my wife when I come home and she understood because there was nothing that I was going to be able to do besides obviously comforting her and that, because it was a very heavy situation for her and I have the utmost respect for my wife because war is a lot harder on the people at home than I think it is than on the guys there. Yeah, sure. When you're there, it's tough. it's, It's hard work and everything, but we all want to be there. When you're at home and they hear things on the TV or the news and stuff, and even though then they know that they're going to get a phone call first, the worry that they must go through, and the stress, which is probably what caused my wife to have a miscarriage at that time, I think they're the ones that should be getting medals and you know getting best soldier awards. I think it's my wife that should get that. I chose the team and the job first over that going home. I'm still okay with that decision these days. When I actually went home, I had time to reconcile with my wife and you know, hang out with my kids, and it was a bit funny. Like it was fine with the. Don't get me wrong; it was all good. You know, we had barbecues with my friends, my triathlete mates, and stuff, and. They all looked after my family while I was away and we'd have barbecues and talk and stuff like that. But at the same time, all I was really focused on was like, we had four or six weeks leave when I got home and then you go straight back in and do courses and we did build-up training. So I got marched straight out of Bravo Company. They were going on to TAG and then I went straight over to Alpha Company to rotate back in 2010 and I was so happy about that.
1: Well, Dean, let's get right into it. Tell me about your 2010 deployment and how are you finding being in contact situations after this, like you just described, is that awareness of being in combat, zooming out from that micro focus to that macro focus? Are you feeling, I don't mean this in a wanky way, but a greater sense of mastery of what you're doing and the skills involved and you're a better cog in the machine, you're contributing more strongly as a team
0: member? Yes, I did feel like that. Like once again, I still had this thing. I mean, I I think I've always had it. I've always had a little bit of an inferior complex about myself. I've never really thought that I was a super soldier or anything like that. I don't think any of the guys in the unit do think they're super soldiers, but I never thought I was always super on top of it. However, when I got to go and I joined Alpha Company and I met the new guys in my team and I was going to be team scout, which is what I always want to do. Because I I mean, if there's one thing that I, I was good at was seeing things. I got to start so many contacts over there because I actually saw it, the dude or physician or whatever. I saw it before it happened. I just had good eyes. I don't know why. I just did, you know, and my hearing mightn't have been the best, but my eyes were pretty good, you know. So when I joined the team in Alpha Company, I was extremely excited. We did a lot of really good lead-up training. We did marksmanship courses and stuff like that. I was going to be doing a sniper course at the end of my 2010 trip. Like, I was just so happy to be there. And with the lead up that we had, I did feel like I was contributing a lot more. On the lead up training that we did in Koltana, only a few weeks before we actually pushed out to Afghanistan, we go down to there and we do a lot of uh, live fire, room to room combat, live fire, cars, the whole lot, helo operations, everything. A guy that I didn't know extremely well, but I'd met him a few times. He was in the other platoon. His name's Mason Edwards. He was killed in training. Now that was horrific. When that happened, put a stop on everything, only for about 24 hours, and then it was work as normal because we were still building up to go overseas. That happened, Mason, I have to say, gets left out of the conversation, you know, 42 for 42. It's actually 43, you know, because even though he died on a training operation, it was during the, uh, the decade of conflict, and I really believe that he should be included in that. When that happened, that really brings home to you how real training is. I mean, training is as real as it gets, And then you go over and you do the job and it has to be like that. I don't know the exact details of that night. I never really wanted to find out. He was shot through a a soft wall. I think their team stacked up on the wrong wall or something. And I know there's people out there that will know a lot more than me. So that's all I want to say on it. It was a tragic event. And I know that that really brought it home to the families of guys too before he went away because we actually went back home to Queensland for his funeral before we flew back to Afghanistan to start our tour in 2010. So seeing the family then for a very short period of time, I had one night, I think, maybe with the family, the boys and that. So my wife and the two boys came to the funeral. The two boys were really young then. So I think they were like two and four or something or three and five anyway. And um, so I got to spend a night with them. And then, yeah, we went over to Afghanistan. When we went into country, basically all helo ops then pretty much. The first trip was basically a lot of driving around in cars. That trip was just amazing, you know being an assaulter in a team straight away. I was really happy about that and I had a really good team. The two I see of my team at that time, who's a really good mate of mine, he's still, I think he just got out, but he's working overseas somewhere. He and I are like chalk and cheese. We clash heads a little bit, but he had, the family as well. And we used to talk about, you know, his girls and my boys and stuff like that. And he was a great, great guy and I've got most respect for him. He ended up, he was the two I see for my team, but they ended up becoming the team commander when our team was depleted from six guys to four guys by the end of this trip because we had a pretty high attrition rate of guys getting wounded and killed on that operation.
1: And we will get to some of those tragic losses. First, let's talk about one particularly memorable
0: engagement you're in in this tour. The battle for Shualikop. It was a five-day operation. So Major General John Campbell uh, described it as, you know, the biggest operation gunfight that Australian forces, especially Australian Special Forces, had been in since the Vietnam War. So, and I mean, that, as you know, involved SASR and 2 Commando. But we went out, we were doing shaping operations in lead up to this and we got into plenty of gunfights and stuff in the lead up to this. And we were sort of just shaping the battlefield for that that battlefield space for going into this stronghold called Chihuahua and basically taking the fight to the enemy. So... They put in the commando unit on the first day. We went in late at night. I think we landed like midnight or something like that, or maybe one in the morning, and then started kicking doors in and getting guys out of bed and asking questions. And we sort of were coming up pretty dry. We knew that these guys were the guys we were after, but they had no weapons in their houses and we couldn't find anything. So we did this all the way till the early hours of the morning, till about I think it was like five a.m. in the morning. We were still going into different compounds, trying to find out where the bad guys were. We were getting some ICOM chatter and stuff like that. And then the Sierras were up on one of the features. Our Sierra team was up on one of the features and they contacted and killed two guys at about 5.30 in the morning. And then that started it off. The rest of the day was gunfighting the whole day. There were skirmishes. We were all split up into, I think we were about three or four different elements. Our team was tasked to get up onto the high ground with the Sierras that had that early morning contact and go and give them support. They were also up there with very little water or anything. They didn't have anything. It was a super hot day. It was becoming a super hot day. So we were tasked to go up onto the um, top of the ridgeline with those guys up to the top of the mountain. We made our way up there. All the while, the other elements were in pretty heavy gunfights, surrounded most of the day. We made our way up to the top and then we were in basically in the Sierra role with those guys, just helping spot and shoot and share the workload for the day. Now, this is the top of a feature. This is the highest feature up there. There was an IED that they'd already found up there. So we put a marker panel over it. So there was an IED there. So this is obviously where the bad guys, this was their high ground that they wanted. There were a couple of other features that were a little bit lower but five to 800 meters away sort of thing or 400 to 800 meters away depending on which feature it was and the other elements were down in the green belt everyone was having their own problems and gunfights during the whole day so we're pretty much stuck up there it was extremely hot there was no shade and we'd been going for around about mid-morning to to lunchtime maybe 10 10 o'clock to midday and we'd sort of Just had time to, okay, like if one guy at a time could sort of have a bit of a rest, you know, it wasn't like you were going to sleep, but you could just sort of, you know, take your gear off for a sec, have a drink, try and get under a little bit of shade on the corner of a rock in between sort of gunfire. And it's while we are up there, there was a lull for about an hour and a half, nothing happening. You know, like we were seeing guys, well, it was actually females with their full hijabs on, but you could see that they were resupping. They were sort of walking out of the green belt, with stuff under there and resupping whoever was up in the, in the mountains, okay? So that sort of pattern of life stuff was going on while we were having a bit of a rest. We got hit from four sides all at once, deafening, defilade fire from down below, PKM fire, RPGs, you name it, was coming in from every direction. So you couldn't hide behind a rock because you were getting rocks smashing with rounds from this side and then wasps, you know, the sounds of wasps, those really close ones coming past you directly this way It didn't matter which which way you went. You just had to sort of sit there and take it. So this was then a long-range gun battle that went all afternoon and we were spotting and acquiring targets and killing enemy. RPGs were coming up these ridge lines. They would come up in between us and the other part of the team that was sitting maybe three or four meters. I remember seeing, actually seeing, they must have been a thousand meters as the uh, sort of the reach for an RPG. And they must have been coming up to the end of it because one RPG came up in between us and we had a, a bear up there, which is a guy who's listening in for us and he had his interpreter with him. This RPG slammed into the rock just behind him and didn't go off. And this was like two or three meters from me and I've got a great Pick of this mate of mine holding up this rpg rocket that didn't go off and if it had gone off it would have killed him and the interpreter that we had with us this went on for a good half an hour it was really intense fighting and then it sort of mellowed out into the afternoon it was a bit of a snipe off really i suppose for want of better words there's still heavy fighting going on all day in the green belt but late that afternoon i paired up with another mate of mine who's still in and a guy who i really looked up to as well ben chuck he used to be later killed in action in the same helicopter crash as the other boys but he was a a really good sniper and he was glassing for me he gave me his sr-25 and said right let's go i'm going to call you on and you can fire and and get some practice because he goes because when we get home from this you know you're doing a sniper course with us and i was like yep cool all afternoon, we basically did that. And we were clocking dozens and dozens of enemy here. And we were trying to call in air support. While this was all happening, and this is all in hindsight that I know this from talking to the other elements, the other elements down the Green Belt, they were surrounded as well and in really heavy gunfights all day. Our OC and CSN were trying to call in air support, but we were getting no, no love from TK. They weren't allowing us to um, call in any air support but we could have killed dozens more. I think we killed about two dozen guys that day, the whole element, all of us together. And we probably could have killed another two dozen. In the late afternoon, when the fighters, Taliban fighters started pouring back out of the green belt, we were up high, we were glassing, and we could see them. They're a bit out of range, so we couldn't really shoot them. We were trying to call in Apaches to come in and strafe these guys, but they wouldn't do it. All they would let us have late afternoon was to drop a 500 pound bomb on this peak that was about 400 meters away that we were trying to get this other sniper or a Taliban sniper team or whatever, whatever you want to call them. We were trying to get these guys all day. And there's a funny little story I'll tell you about in a minute, but we got to drop a 500 pounder on these guys late in the afternoon and that sort of silenced them finally. And that sort of led into a a pretty quiet night. Late afternoon, we were glassing across this other peak about 400 metres away. I remember sitting there looking through my uh, SR25 scope, Schmidt and better scope I had there, and I remember looking across trying to find where this guy was coming from. And a really good mate of mine who's still in at the moment, he's glassing as well at the same time. And I'm looking and I go, because there's still shots coming. You know, there's still shots coming, really quite accurate shots, pinging and rocks in front of you and all sorts of stuff. It was pretty heavy still. I just sort of said to him, I said, do you reckon this see you later? can see us and no sooner had that come out of my mouth and a wasp of around went straight past my head like it was it's the one that you don't hear that gets you and this thing was so close and then there was one followed up straight away boom boom just the two wasps i had my camera going on my helmet on my hat sorry and you can hear this wasp you know like super close and no sooner had i said hey do you reckon this see you later can see us that happened true to form very dry my mate, who was sitting beside me, didn't even pull his eye away from the glass. He goes, I reckon that, see you later, I can see ya," And we just pissed ourselves laughing so hard. It was just, it was such a great moment after such a heavy day. And it was a really heavy day of fighting. We didn't lose anyone, which is a miracle, I reckon. Like, And that comes into the story later on with Timmy Aplin again. But we didn't lose anyone. Nothing happened. The very next day is when the SASR guys only a couple of k's away, just over the next valley, heloed in and had that big action that they were involved with while we were still fighting in the other valley. They had that really big action there where um, RS and his VC, and they got all the air support they wanted that day. They were Winchestering, which means, you know, I don't know if people know, but that means um, they had um, Apache helicopters coming in, using all their ordnance, flying back out, Reese up and coming back and going again. And I think that went for like 12 or 13 hours and I think they had pretty much Apaches on call all day and they obviously needed them because I think they were in a bit of strife to start with. But yeah, I mean, I won't talk about that action. I wasn't over the hill, but uh, they obviously um, did a great job over there. What we would have given for a bit of air support the day before. Now, my take on it is, and I think it's pretty close to the money, was that the reason we didn't get air support that day was because the commanding officer of SOTG didn't allow us to have it so that it would draw some individuals that they'd been wanting to chase for quite a while get them to come above the threshold and get on their icons so to speak and make a play which it worked and um you know full credit to him it was uh, definitely um a master stroke but i have to say we were quite angry on the first day because if we had have lost someone that day due to the fact that we weren't allowed air support then he would have had a whole different ball game when we got back to the tk
1: Is that the end of the action in that battle for you?
0: No. So day two, pretty heavy fighting again. I think the SASR guys got out late that afternoon and then we stayed for another three days, some mop-up operations. We had some small gunfights. Our team, we were on overwatch on the last day and we were sort of on the overwatch on one side of this big valley watching Taliban move up the valley below us. And they were a little bit out of range for us to do anything about it. And as we were sitting there watching these guys, this is really early morning, looked over and saw this guy stand up with his AK-47 and he was on a, on a phone or an icon. He was obviously trying to find us. He knew that we were there somewhere, but he couldn't see us. So we ended up taking him out. That was on the last day. And then we had a horrendous walk out to get to the helos after that. It was really, it was quite one of the toughest things I've ever done, actually. But there was five days of intense war fighting By the time we got back to TK, everyone needed a bit of a rest because we pretty much hadn't slept for five days. It was continual work.
1: And at the end of that, when you finally get to sit down and breathe, how do you reflect on what's just happened, that marathon you've just endured?
0: It was just amazing that no one got wounded or killed, especially that first day. That first day was intense. Like When you're getting sustained, accurate fire from heavy machine guns, RPGs, All day, and there's nowhere to hide from it. You just got to sit there and take your medicine if it comes your way. Was really intense, you know. That was one time I thought, okay, well, I could definitely wear around here. I can't see how we're going to get out of this without someone being killed or wounded. And I think you can say you've got good training and good drills and all that sort of stuff, but there's there's always a shitload of luck that comes with stuff like that as well. You know, the big sky theory. There's lots of rounds flying around, and hopefully, you're just not walking in front of one. When we got back to TK and we got to reflect on it, yeah, we were all really happy about it. I mean, there was already whispers going around that, you know, RS was getting a a VC at that stage and we were all sort of like, wow, that's pretty early to be talking about things like that. But then over the next couple of weeks, task was doing some mop-up operations, doing helo ops. We were basically taking turns with our system team. We'd do a day where we'd go in and and, uh, do some shaping ops or, or, or clearance operations And then we'd come back and then the other platoon would go in the next day. And we were doing that for, you know, a couple of weeks. And it was sort of towards the end of our trip. And I remember sitting down with Timmy Applin and we were having a beer one afternoon. I think we just got back from a job or something and they were going out the next day. Anyway, we're sitting at the back of our lines over there and we were having a chat. And we were just sort of like just shaking our heads and talking amongst ourselves about, man, how lucky we were to come out of Shuali Kot with nothing going on. And once again, I did this thing, which I sort of, you know, kicked myself for a little bit. I sort of said to him, mate, if no one got killed there and none, none of us got wounded in that, no one's getting killed on this trip. Those words came out of my mouth. He laughed once again. He just laughed at me and goes, Dino. He goes, you're always saying this shit, mate. Eh? He goes, set it in selection, just kept going on the first trip in 2009, you said it then, mate, you go... And he was just laughing, but he was just laughing and taking the piss out of me. And I was like, yeah, 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 true. And I sort of, I apologised, almost apologised to him and said, yeah, yeah, but it's like, it's true, you know? Like, how can no one get hurt after that five days? Well, the very next mission he went on, which was the next day or might have even been that night, I can't remember. Yeah, they had a brownout, the helo went down and uh, we lost Scotty Palmer, Ben Chuck and Timmy Applin that night and one of the air crew, one of the US air crew, and all the guys on that helo... With the same Sierra group that we were hanging out with at the top of the battle in the Shkawali cot. And they're like Robbo is another great guy. who's out now. I can say his name. He's a great guy. I really look up to that guy, such a warrior to go through what he's gone through and to be the man he is today. Um, but he was always that man, you know, like all those guys were really badly injured. Yeah. I always regret saying that stuff. So I don't say shit like that anymore. Um, it took a while for me to learn my lesson, but um, I just don't talk about stuff like that anymore because lightning does strike more than once.
1: Nothing you could have said we know could have had any real impact on it, but I appreciate that is a rather unlucky curse to be carrying.
0: Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why I had a lot of Survivor's Guild and a lot of, a little bit of depression and stuff when I got out because I thought about those things a lot about what I said. And I know what you say doesn't make things happen. I understand that. But I do regret saying those couple of things because in some ruthless way, it sort of came true. The irony of it is, that, you know, it did happen when you're saying it's not going to happen. So that's one of the things I think about occasionally. I might just go back quickly to Hilo crash. So we were woken up at about two in the morning and put on standby, ready to go. And all we were told was, is that there's been an incident. We were told that uh, there was a brownout from one of the helicopters from the earlier sortie. There were deaths. We didn't know who at that stage and we didn't know how many. So at that time, I sort of had a bit of a feeling in my gut, which sounds, once again, it sounds a bit, don't want it to be about me really, but I did have a bit of a feeling. And I said to my team commander at that stage, I said, Oh, do you know any names? Is it Tim? He basically sort of looked at me and he went over and he spoke to our sergeant, came back and sort of gave me a bit of a nod and said, Yeah, one of them's Tim. So I actually was really devastated and distraught at that stage. I mean, nothing. I didn't show it outwardly or anything i just know inside me i remember that feeling going oh this you know this is really going to suck so anyway we got on the helos we went out there to relieve the platoon that was involved with the crash and they'd obviously secured the crash site and done the first sort of emu bob of picking up pieces of equipment you know military equipment we don't want other people getting weapons and obviously you know picking up pieces of people So we relieved them in place. They left and then uh, our platoon did the same thing. Went out there and basically did an emu bob, kept finding pieces of equipment and, and so forth. And that was, you know, to see the site was absolutely devastating because the helo went in with such force that there were rotor blades stuck in the ground and then 200 metres away was another piece of aircraft. 150 metres away, was, it was spread out over a couple of football fields. Absolutely a horrendous crash that the boys were involved in. And everyone came out not unscathed by that. So we were out there for most of the day, once again, securing it, making sure nothing, no equipment was left or no bits of, say, people and stuff was still not left on the ground. And then the SASR, I believe, came in late that afternoon and relieved us in place. And they did the same thing over the next night while there was a bit of an investigation going forth. Obviously, everyone in the unit was devastated. It was pretty heavy. We had a service for them over there. Operations pretty much, I think, kept going. I mean, we had a few, I think there was a few down days just so we could sort of, regroup and you know get the unit sort of get their head around what had happened but I'm pretty sure operations started up a few more days later and, and just continued on till the end of the tour a few of us came home early to bring the bodies back that was really towards the end of the tour so look the unit just kept operating as per usual
1: There's obviously the tragic loss of Tim Applin, Ben Chuck, and Scott Palmer, but seven other Aussie commandos are seriously injured from fractures and lacerations to crush and head injuries. That's 10 people taken out of action from one level or another. So that's an effect on the unit, not just in terms of morale, but also just in terms of numbers, people on the ground.
0: It was actually horrific. And the other guys on the were was a full Sierra team, sniper team. And they were one of the most experienced teams that were over there at that time. They were all very badly injured. Lots of them spent, we're talking months, half a year to years recuperating. Some to never recuperate again fully, obviously. But a few of those guys went back to work a couple of years later, you know, and and I think one or two are still working. So that just goes to show you the the calibre of guys that the unit has. And that is the amazing thing about special operations. And I think, funnily enough, I think, those tours, obviously all those tours and the losses of guys over the years, Cam Baird blossomed the unit from being a, a young unit with very little combat experience into a partner or a sister unit that rivals the uh, SASR. It was no longer, I think, little brother. I think it was basically on even par with those guys. And you know, even though there's probably guys in both units that might not like me saying that or agree with it, that's fair enough. Everyone has their own opinion. But I believe after the Afghanistan conflict, I can definitely say that two commando regiment stands on its own two feet and is certainly not the little brother to anyone now. And I believe that's a great thing, you know, because I know I know that everyone that I deal with in two commando just I'll speak on my own behalf, but I have the utmost respect for the SASR regiment and the guys that are the operators in that unit. But they are first class and world class and they are second to none. But I believe, you know, if you look at it in a micro sort of macro sort of way, you look at incidents like that, and it drew everyone together and just made the unit stronger and tighter. So once we uh, left Afghanistan and we uh, had the ramp ceremony and we went home, you know, we met obviously with the families and that at uh, RAF Base Richmond, and that was a real moment for me. Well, I didn't know how to feel actually because I was ecstatic to be coming home because my wife had had a baby three months prior and I hadn't, you know, met Bub. And also then we're also bringing back, you know, three really great mates and, and one of my best friends, and also then having to, you know, see their families, how devastated they were at coming home. And then obviously, like you mentioned, Alex, the other seven guys from our unit, you know, they were all over the place. Some were in Germany and you know, some were sort of in Afghanistan and that's still getting treated and being repatriated at some stage. So there was 10 families there that were devastated about what had just happened. And yet, you know, we come home and we have a bit of a ramp ceremony at the other end for the, for the boys. And, you know, a lot of the unit was out there to meet us. And that was a really, really hard time as well. Personally, it was for me because I went up to see Tash, which is Timmy Applin's wife. And because I'll, I'll digress a little bit, you know, after our tours, Tim Applin and his family and my, me and my family, myself and my family would take our families like we took them on a ski holiday to New Zealand after '09, together for a week. So we had already planned a trip to Threadbow for the whole group of us, our two families at the end of this trip. I just wanted to give Tash a hug. But when we got there, it was obviously it was too raw for her. She didn't want to see or talk to me at that stage, which is, which is understandable. So we were there for a few hours. Julie decided not to bring the kids out there to meet us because of that as well. I mean, Julie was sort of you know, aware that this wasn't going to be a really...
1: It's not the time for a happy reunion.
0: Correct. Yeah. And you don't want to be you know, doing the hugging thing and all that sort of stuff when you know, you're wheeling in three coffins and there are people mourning. So I thought that was a great call. Cam Baird saw that I was pretty upset about the whole Timmy thing and, and then when Tash sort of ushered me away and said, you know, no, I can't talk to you yet. I sort of went off by myself and Cam came over to me because of being in the team together on a previous tour and being great mates with Timmy Applin himself and for a big unit like that to throw his arm around me and just go, mate, it's all good, you know, like let the emotions flow, blah, blah, blah and, you know, we'll get on with it. It did steady the ship for me. It wasn't for a few hours. So, I mean, that happened late afternoon on the day we got home and it was around about Maybe 11 o'clock at night, maybe even midnight before we got back to the unit and my wife was waiting there with our bub and there was a lot of other people waiting, like all the other spouses and, and family members were waiting for everyone else to come back there. So it was rather quite late at night when I first met my daughter and that was a bit of a sweet moment, you know, like great to be there. We were super tired because, you know, we'd just been working and all this sort of stuff going on and bringing the bodies home. It was, it was a bizarre feeling. I'll
1: come back to your wife and meeting your daughter in a moment. Did you ever have a Christmas on deployment?
0: I never had a Christmas on deployment, but we did have Anzac Day. Tell me about that. I think it's safe to say that people knew we we could get hold of some beers and some alcohol over there whenever we needed to. So it was pretty handy that we would uh, stock a little bit up and save it for a certain few occasions when, you know, the headshed would say, okay, boys, you can have some beers today and that sort of thing. And one of those days happened to be Anzac Day. Keith Payne came over for Anzac Day and so there was two up going on and lots of stuff and then we actually because the SOTG special operations task group was on the other side of the HESCO barrier so we were sort of separated from the other units in Tarrant so we had our own little timber bar set up from all the previous tours guys had worked on a big wooden deck out the back and you know we had some guy there, one of the guys had had a big set to play music and stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm 49. I don't know even what you'd call it, but you could do whatever you wanted to with music and play the DJ thing. And we had a big screen and stuff. So we had a very big Anzac Day there in 2010 and 2009, actually both tours. And that was great because we all got to have a couple of days off. We were told that there's nothing going on for at least two or three days. So a day either side of it. So we actually end up paying our respects in the morning and doing the service, which was a really Cool thing looking back on it, you know, like I remember actually doing the service of my first one overseas and it really meant a lot to me to be on operations and commemorate Anzac Day. Then to finish that off with some two-up and, you know, having a few beers with the guys and just having a lot of fun. And we had some of the SF guys from the US base, part of the base come over and, and hang out as well. And it was just a great time where everyone could sort of, you know, for want of a better word, let their hair down, relax with each other, talk rubbish, enjoy each other's company outside of the work environment. And it, it got rowdy. Empty tinnies were thrown over the other side of the HESCO barrier. And I was actually awake one morning at about 2.30 or something it was, myself and Tim and a few other guys were on the HESCO barrier finishing our last beers and um, two gentlemen from the other side from the normal battalion side, MTF side came over and sort of started berating us for the empties being on their side and what were we doing drinking and I remember Timmy Applin very politely telling them to mind their own business and finishing his beer and (laughs) letting that roll down the other side as well and so when we when we woke up obviously the next day and had breakfast and that sort of thing we got The boss came in and sort of spoke to us and said, hey, look, you know, it's okay having a few beers out there, boys. But it was actually uh, the commanding officer of that unit that was talking to you that morning. So um, (laughs) whoever was telling him to piss off, we're having a few beers. Can you please refrain from doing so? So, yeah, that was sort of, you know, looking back on it, that's a very lighthearted moment. And that's, you know, that was what it was all about, I suppose, having that little bit more free reign to have a little bit of fun when you needed to because the amount of work that the guys were doing and the intensity of the operations of daily, you know, daily operations needed, it was very important for it to be split up by having a little bit of downtime and actually having a few beers.
1: In your 2009 deployment, your wife very sadly had a miscarriage and you made the decision to stay in country and carry on with the mission. And I'm sure that wasn't the easiest conversation to have when you got home. This time, your wife's pregnant again while you're away. Thankfully, she gives birth to a healthy baby daughter. And as you just said, you come home and meet this child for the first time. There must have been a lot of emotion going on in that moment.
0: Yeah, there was a lot of emotion going on when I came home and met Jace, my little girl, obviously had some photos sent over when we were in country and that sort of thing, and and that's all very well and good. But Alex, you know, after she lost a bub and then come home after that tour and then we go away again and, you know, and then she gives birth, for her to do that by herself, having two little boys already, young kids already, and then give birth while I'm away, you know, is a fantastic, I was going to say achievement, but it just shows you the calibre of lady that she is, you know. To be able to handle that, I can't imagine how hard that would have been on her. And coming home and meeting Bub that night, it was really good. I mean, you know, we sat down at the uh, servicemen's club that we were at on base and, you know, everyone was sort of saying good day And, and it was nice to have Bub there and I held her from the first time and all that sort of thing. But it was also really bizarre because obviously, like I just said, everyone was really on a bit of a downer obviously because of what we'd just been through, you know. Like right towards the end of the tour, we lose three guys. Seven guys are really badly injured and the air crew, the other you know, four members of the air crew, one of those guys died and the other three were badly injured as well. So it was a real morbid way, I suppose, to celebrate seeing your daughter for the first time. Even in that moment, it reiterated to me on how lucky I was. And I had this thing, someone's always having a worse day than you. All that was in my mind was, you know, like, how were the other families and spouses feeling about their loved ones that they'd lost? And I, I had that same moment when we landed out at the crash site and we started looking around for gear and stuff like that. And in my head, I was just like, I was devastated that I knew that Tim was gone. And it didn't take me long to realize that I was sort of just spiraling down into a little bit of, not depression, but just being sad and not focusing on the job. I remember thinking, I'm feeling sad, I'm so sad, I've lost my friend, you know, how devastating is this? And then it was like a bolt of lightning, you know, and it struck me and I was like, well, if I'm feeling this bad, you know, bad as Ben Chuck, Scotty Palmers and, you know, Tash Applin, how are they going to feel when they hear this news? You know, like someone is always having a worse day than you, no matter what's going on in your life, there are worse things that can happen. Keep everything in perspective and soldier on, chin up and keep moving forward.
1: What's really impressive to me, Dean, is that you had such significant injuries when you were younger, yet here you are at this point in time in your late 30s doing special forces operations in Afghanistan two years in a row from Qantas flight attendant to commando. It's a really impressive turnaround. But did those old injuries ever catch up with you?
0: They surfaced a couple of times, but the main one I suppose was... On one of those operations, we were doing the helo ops towards the end of that trip. I just jumped out. It was really innocuous, actually. I just jumped out of the helo. There was sort of, I don't know, knee-high grass wherever we were getting out in the green belt this time. And I just stepped off and then down. And there was obviously a big hole or a ditch that I'd actually just stepped into, I'm not expecting it. I've gone another half a meter or a meter further forward with all your gear on. And it really just, it banged in, jarred my back straight away. And I sort of hadn't had that for a long time. I hadn't felt it like that for a long time because I'd worked very hard to be fit and healthy and strong again. When that happened, I knew straight away that it was something pretty serious. I went back and went to the RAP, went to see the medical officer and that sort of stuff. And, you know, for those last sort of week or two, I chewed a lot of painkillers and stuff like that and uh, anti-inflammatories just to finish the job because at that stage, we had our team was down to four people from all the injuries and the deaths that we'd had. All the teams were manned pretty lightly at that time. So I just wanted to finish the trip and not leave my team from a six-man team to a four if i had a left it would have been down to three so i just didn't want to leave in the lurch so i did everything i could and the medical officer at the time really looked after me with that and it was fortunate enough that i saw the rest of the uh, trip through and the unfortunate part of it was is that it was it was a shorter time period than i needed to because of once the Black Hawk accident happened then the trip got cut shorter again. So once I got home and started to get some real medical attention and advice around that was a catalyst for me getting out of the military because my back was absolutely buggered this time. And then obviously I had a few issues with survivor guilt and some depression, which flowed on from going on leave when I got home and my wife and I sort of, we still went and had that week down at Threadbow. And it wasn't a great week, to be quite honest, because one, we weren't there with the people we wanted to be there with. Two, we had a new newborn baby. And three, I was sort of starting to, you know, have really early signs of not having the right mechanisms in place for coping with a little bit of survival guilt. I came home and I stayed home. Uh, Basically, didn't go back to the unit. A hard thing for me to do, actually. I didn't want to go back there and face the guys, to be quite honest. It was a very, very tough time for me. And I, I don't mean to sound like I'm just talking about me all the time. I was thinking about the guys and that as well like you know I didn't want to go back there and be that guy walking around the unit that is a crook back and has a few issues upstairs as well and I think this is really early on in the piece you know we've seen over the years now about how many guys even just from our unit alone let alone the greater army have committed suicide and things like that from PTSD and depression I don't think I was ever in that headspace that heavy but I certainly didn't want to be walking around the unit and I suppose inflicting my sort of depression and stuff like that on the other guys so
1: you didn't want to be a burden either not that you would have been but this is the mindset you had
0: correct yes and i look i have to say the unit was amazing i had phone calls from the commanding officer from previous commanding officers that i knew from my my oc actually flew up to Queensland and came out to our house. But I was actually at augra at the hospital the day he came out and he actually sat down with my wife for a few hours and said, look, you know, everything's fine. You know, Dean's got a great reputation amongst the guys in the unit, blah, 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 and all this sort of stuff, which is which is really cool. It's, it's amazing. My mates never stopped calling me and texting me and ringing and that sort of thing. I end up having a full back operation. I've got a, a thing that's called a cage in the back there. So it's about two or three inches long and a few bolts and all sorts of things going on there. I've had four knee operations. And so I've been put back together relatively well. But through that time, I self medicated as well as taking the medication that the guys were giving us. Had a few little stints in a hospital for my headspace. And that alone was challenging. Uh, And even in there, I was, I have to say I made wrong choices, you know, like I was self-medicating in there as well. It was a really, I don't want to say tough time. It was just, it was a time in my life. I've never been like that before. And I haven't, you know, I haven't been like that since either, but um, it was just a very bizarre time. I didn't want to reach out to anyone, didn't want to be a burden to anyone, even including my wife and my kids. The yin and the yang of it is, was that I was at home and, you know, I'd take my kids surfing across the road and teach my young boys how to surf and that sort of stuff. I still had a lot of processing of different thoughts to go through. That took me quite a while.
1: And after you discharge, Dean, that's not the end of it for you either because it's after that that Mervyn McDonald and Cameron Baird, close mates of yours in the unit and who you're on tour with in 2009, are killed.
0: Yes. So... Obviously, the unit was still had another couple of years in the conflict in Afghanistan. And that was one of the reasons that I was really upset with myself, actually, at the time, because it was a job that wasn't finished. And I really didn't want to leave my mates in the unit doing the same thing when the job wasn't finished, you know, when the war wasn't over. So having said that, at different times, I received the news of different guys in the unit dying, some that I knew really well and some that I didn't know as well that I'd met or spent some time with. Brett Wood was another guy who I really looked up to. The news of Merv getting killed in another Blackhawk crash and then Cameron Baird dying in action was absolutely devastating. I had my good friends ring me up, another guy who's who's out, but I don't want to mention his name because he's still working overseas and stuff, but um, he would contact me and out of the blue, you know, some of the times he'd just ring me up, hey, mate, here you go, park and we just talk rubbish. And then those couple of times he was the one that would call me up and say, hey, mate, got something to tell you. And when he told me about Merv passing away, you know, I was absolutely shattered once again, you know. I suppose I had the luxury of being at home and not having to still be on operations and still doing stuff. But I have to say like being at that stage, I had really separated myself from the unit, not in touch with anyone from the unit. So I dealt with a lot of these things by myself. Once again, you know, like instead of being around the guys and some really close mates who understand exactly what's going on when something like that happens, I would just deal with it myself. And that would be, you know, moping around the yard or going across the beach and just thinking about things and, really hit home strong when we'd lost obviously tim then merv and cameron and that's three guys out of our out of my team in 2009 so that's the legends car photo that everyone goes on about we took photos of each car then and, and how bizarre is it those three guys three really good guys have all gone in different times during that conflict it's easy to say they're all good guys, but I have to say like, it just seems to be that the good dude die young. And I'm talking about like guys with integrity and good work ethic and funny, smart, just guys you'd want to hang around with. And certainly guys you want to be in a hole with, or jump out of a helo with on an operation and those types of environments. They are the exact guys who you want to be with. To have those three guys immortalized in that picture, I think is just an amazing thing for not only the unit, but for the country wherever you see that picture it's been painted and i think there's one in the war memorial if there's not there will be soon in cam's book and that sort of thing to actually see that picture now and remember being there that day that we we took those photos and we are all just mucking around, smiling. And Cam was saying, come on, wankers, hurry up, take these photos. So we get on with it, you know, some real soldiering rather than just sitting around taking photos and stuff like that. To remember that whole little, that five minutes, that process, and then to see them immortalised in that photo and they're all smiling and they're all just happy. I think it's a special thing. It's a special part of Australian history.
1: You had wanted to be in this position, a Special Forces soldier for the longest time, and we've obviously touched on some of the hardships and challenges you've dealt with. We also touched on some of the great moments you had on deployment and how satisfying it was for you to be there and finally test these skills of yours. If you could go back in time, would you do it all again? And what are some of the positives you've taken away from your military service?
0: I would absolutely do it all again. In a heartbeat, I'd go back now, you know, I mean, I'm 49 years old and this is how ridiculously Stupid. Some some of the things that go around my head are with all the stuff that's going on in the world right now. I got onto the website the other day as a young guy here. He's 26. He wants to join the second commander regiment. I think he'd be great for it. So we were doing some research for him and sort of sorting it out. And I've put him in touch with some of the guys at the unit and stuff like that. Anyway, I'm looking on there and, and at the moment it's probably just you know the PC thing. But it says the top age bracket for joining special forces is 50, and I was just joking around with my wife the other day. I said, see, I've still got another 12 months. I could go back.
1: And how did she react to that?
0: <laughs> uh, she was like, yeah, that's not happening. It's not happening at all. And i tell you, mate, I'd go back in a heartbeat and regrets. I have none at all. I think the only regret I wish that this had have happened to me when I was twenty, twenty-two 22, instead of when I was 37, you know, I really wish I had a lot more time in the unit with those guys. I have the utmost respect for everyone in the military doesn't matter what branch you're in everyone's got a job to do and it's it's such an important role in everyone's life you know it's a cliche thing to say that everyone takes things for granted in this country and they do. And I've had people ask me questions about, you know, certain questions about, you know, the military and what's it like and, you know, that war, is it just? And if the kids don't want to get out of bed, like my kids don't want to get out of bed and show, not my kids, but someone else's kids don't want to get out of bed on Anzac morning and show respect, you know, what do you think? Can you just tell them, you know, something about it so they want to get out of bed? And I continually tell people the same thing. And it's like, well, if they want to sleep in, let them sleep in because, I mean, that's why guys are on the wall. That's why guys go away and, that's why soldiers such as the guys we've been talking about, guys in these units, go away and implement this country's foreign policies in other parts of the world and go away and help people so that you can have freedom of choice in Australia. The choice to knock it out of bed and sleep in on that day. I mean, I'm okay with that. Obviously, I'd like everyone to get up and pay respects, but to actually have the choice and not be told you have to do things, that is why guys and girls join the military in the first place, so that we have those abilities to make those decisions for ourselves and not have something shoved down our throat. So I know I'm digressing off the subject a little bit, but I would in a heartbeat go back do it all over again and not change a thing. And I just, you know, I just love the unit itself. You know, the 2nd Commander the Regiment, the guys that gave me a chance from recruiting through to the, you know, the guys that put me in their team to the guys that I served alongside. They're just some of the most amazing people that this country produces. And I you say the same thing for the SASR as well. I look back on it very fondly. With everything that's happened, I wouldn't change a thing, mate.
1: Well, Dean, you mentioned earlier that you had, for a time, separated yourself a bit from the regiment and were in touch with a few guys, but obviously lots changed over the years. You've moved on with life. You very generously put your hand up to say, hey, you'll come on the podcast and share some stories. So I want to know, Dean, how are you and the family doing today? What have you been doing with yourself since leaving the army? And I guess, why did you volunteer to come on the show?
0: The reason I volunteered to come on the show is because it's very cathartic for me, because I haven't really spoken a lot about any of this to anyone. A little bit to my wife, nothing really to the kids. Both my boys have read Cameron Baird's book because I believe that's very recent history that everyone in Australia needs to know about but I don't throw and shove anything down their throats all the time like that but as you know I put it off a few times and I was even going to put it off again because I just didn't feel comfortable talking about me because as I said to you earlier mate like I've never looked at myself as being a super soldier or anything like that I mean I'm far from it you know like I think I just wanted to contribute and I wanted to contribute at the highest level and I just didn't want to be you know I was a grunt so I'm allowed to say this I believe you know like I just didn't want to just being in a battalion, there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. But I, I wanted to do soldiering at the highest level I could. In regards to, you know, what we're doing now, like the family's, you know, really going along swimmingly. You know, we live up here on the Sunshine Coast, not far from the beach. Both my boys are exceptional surfers and exceptional snowboarders. Uh, one of them has a scholarship with the uh, NSW, New South Wales Institute of Sport, and is on the sort of the Youth Olympic Winter Sports Programme. Trying to go to the Olympics of snowboarding. My little girl is a lot like me. She hates school. She's very outdoorsy, loves horses, and she's just a rat bag who is just an incredible little, you know, light in our lives. My wife is uh still working for Civil Aviation Safety Authority. She's been there for many years, and um, yeah, she's charging along. We're very happy, mate. You know, we have our ups and downs like any family, but I think overall, For two young men that sort of grew up with their mother, just looking after them for, you know, a good five to seven year period there when they were really young. For me, it's all about putting more time in with the kids and the family. You know, you can't catch time up, you know, and it's not about quality time, so to speak. It's just about good time with the kids as much as I can. And that's what I'm doing at the moment. I'm Mr. Mumming at the moment. I spend a lot of time at the moment away with my son with his snowboarding. I follow him around, make sure he's doing his schoolwork, make sure he's eating well, make sure he's training hard and he hears all sorts of you know sayings and all sorts of stuff that I've learned over the years coming out of my mouth, throwing it down range at him and that sort of thing. And I just enjoy being a father at the moment. I'm very blessed to have three really good kids. They're all different The oldest fellow, Jai, he's uh, finishing uh, year 12 this year. You know, he does the physics, chemistry, all that sort of stuff. He's just a straight A kid and he loves the environment. So he's a bit of an environmental warrior. So they're all very different, mate. And I'm very proud of all the three of them and who they are becoming. The two young lads are becoming great young men. And that's what we need in this country. We need good young people that can have different opinions and varying different looks on life, but still listen intently to someone else's opinion and not get upset by it. We're in a happy spot. We're just chugging along like any other family in Australia.
1: Well, Dean, I don't think you give yourself enough credit. You've had a lot of experience in the military over years. And I know uh, from a few SASR guys, for example, they say that sort of the optimal age to actually attempt selection is often in in late 20s, not earlier when you might be, yeah, you might be a bit younger or a bit fitter or something. But the late 20s has, you've got the maturity and the life experience. And that's a quality needed at that higher level of operation. And you were a bit above that range when you finally got into commandos, but you still would have brought some perspective, some real life experience and military experience to the equation there, which I'm sure was valued in the field. You played your part like many others. You've seen some really significant engagements and you've worked with some absolute legends in the community. So I'm glad that you've come forward to share your story because it's got a lot of different color to it, a lot of character. You've been through a lot. Your family's been through a lot and you're still there going strong. And I think that's really admirable and people can take a lot of lessons of resilience and hard work ethic from you.
0: Oh, that's very kind of you to say, Alex. And um, I'd just like to say thank you so much for having me, mate, and letting me you know, share a little bit of my story with you and whoever's going to listen to it. I really appreciate it.
1: Dean Parkinson, thank you for your service and for your time today. track in just a moment. My thanks to Dean for coming on the show. For more on Cameron Baird and his passing, listen to the season two bonus episode, The Commando's Father with Doug Baird.
2: So the doorbell rang that particular night, Kay answered the door and there was three soldiers there uh, with their hats in their hand and she knew just like I did that uh, he'd been killed.
1: And for more on the late Mervyn MacDonald, listen to number 77, Adrian Humphreys, Volume
0: 1. Still thought, oh, fuck, I've been shot. Can't do my job. I really hope I'm not paralysed. I'm still alive. All these little, very clear moments of clarity that you have in your head. And Volume
1: 2. The body bags, they're on the stretchers being extracted up to this helicopter. Looking at the bags, they'd obviously been crushed underneath the aircraft. For another perspective on the tragic helicopter crash, listen to Number 54, H, Volume 5. But the suffering... And the extent of injuries that the remainder of the boys had that lived in that crash, is was just fucking horrific. To see photos of our guests in action, check us out on social media. We're at Life on the Line podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at LOTLpod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Closing music, War, by John Lynham. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.
2: Confusion was burning to his eyes From that day he kissed his mother goodbye He knew it was no game And when he landed there Never felt so much fear in the air. He didn't sleep that first night, and no, nothing seemed to change. Nine years on, it gets dark, and it's the same. Burned in his eyes and the scars left in his mind. They start to ease the more he drinks his homemade wine. He's standing at the bar with his back against the wall. This bug told me he was back from the Afghan. Whoa. Aussie boy who's been to